Well, we're all still here. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Kelsey was the compassionate one last night. Excuse me, last night as we were driving home after 6 p.m. last night. You know, she was, Kelsey was just, oh my gosh, what about those poor people who they, you know, they've given their life savings and things just to this cause of, of Judgment Day. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm just being like, well, they should have read the Bible. You know, Jesus says, no one's going to know. And I said, well, now they need to read Second Thessalonians because that's where, you know, these guys were idle because they thought Jesus was coming and whatever. So it was a great conversation in the car. But I have to say, there was a part of me that was really uh, maybe hoping that it would happen because, you know, for those of you who have been walking with us for a little while, you know, this is the point of the message where I have like a captivating video or I have an important statistic or like a striking story that can, can get us started. But I got absolutely nothing this week. And I was like, wow, Lord, maybe this would be convenient if you just came again because I just, the creative juices aren't flowing right here. So, so God help us. I did manage to, cul- to cultivate a, um, we, got a, we got a cartoon here, so let's start with that. We'll, we'll look at this little cartoon. <clears throat> this will get us right in. Maybe you've been there. How come she got promoted after a week when I've been here a year? Have you been there? Have you been there? I... Um, as a, as a college sophomore or, or junior, I can't remember. It's going to be fun because now some of you guys know some of these personalities I'm about to talk to, but kind of the main guy who invested in my life was a guy named Kurt Mailer. And he's a real prayer guy, and he, he invested in me in kind of a discipleship relationship. And, um, and uh, he's a prayer guy. And um, uh, then the... the a year behind me was a guy named Colby. And, and as I said, some of you guys know Kurt because Kurt was at our, um, our World Mandate, our, our big uh, conference that we have at the end of February here with our sending church. And then another guy comes along named Colby the, a year after me. And some of you guys know Colby too. Colby's just a, real, he's just a real man of God. And he's got the fire of God. He's just a real exciting, engaging personality. And Colby's just stepping off the field uh, with his wife. They were in Northwest or North Africa. Now they're coming off the field. They're about to plant a church in North Carolina. And I just know, knowing Colby, it's going to be an exciting church because he's an exciting guy. and He's filled with the Spirit of God. Well, anyways, as a college junior, I believe, Colby was a year behind me. And both he and I were getting invested in by this man, Kurt Mailer. And Kurt, being a prayer guy, got invited, I, I believe it was to a vineyard church in Idaho. And I went to Baylor. Colby and I went to Baylor in Waco, Texas, Kurt gets invited to speak at, at this vineyard in Idaho, and he, he gets to bring someone with him. And I'm thinking, well, I've been walking with Kurt the closest. He's, he's going to bring me, you know? And then I remember it's like one of those kind of slow-motion movies where Kurt is, we're outside his house, and he's explaining to me why he's going to take Colby and not me. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of what I hear in my mouth, and, or in my ear, excuse me. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, the words are coming, and I'm just not really paying attention. And I hear about how actually Jimmy who's uh, the pastor of our Sending Sending Church, is saying, well, you know, it'd probably be better for, for you, Kurt, to bring Colby because you and Neil are two alike personality-wise and, and Colby's a little different, so you should bring him along, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, was it favoritism on Kurt's part? I don't think so, not at all. But at the time, it was really perceived that way. You know, I perceived that I was being passed over even though I felt like I had been around longer. What about you? 
Have you had experiences like it? Maybe where it was not blatant favoritism or outright favoritism, but you perceived it as being on the short end of the favoritism stick. Have you been there? What about in your family? You know, sometimes those are the wounds that hurt the most. You know, when it's siblings and you feel like mom and dad, they like the other one better than me. Have you been there? Have you been there? I got families looking at each other right now, so. (laughs) Everyone's looking around, that's great. Last week we looked at connecting and how my charge really to a lot of our graduates was you need to stay connected to the body of Christ. But then of course the funny thing is sometimes we have trouble staying connected to the body of Christ because we've tried to connect with the body of Christ and then we've got things like favoritism and all of our relationship dynamics start to come into play and it's difficult. Then you know the internet totally abounds. It wasn't for lack of effort that I couldn't find a decent example. (laughs) That's totally compelling. You read the internet and um, or you search on the internet and you find tons of stories, especially in the workplace, of people feeling like they're the victims of favoritism. And it usually has to do with their looks. People feeling that because they don't look as good as someone else, they don't get promoted. And, you know, thank God for our federal government spending money where it should. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, of all places, did a study and they actually found that good-looking people make about 5% more than ugly people. Okay, that was in 2005. Again, thank you, federal government, for a great study. <laughs> why, why, why the Federal Reserve Bank is doing studies like this, I don't know, but we get to benefit today. So there's a lot out there. So that's how the world works. You know, we can maybe just settle, hey, in the world we can expect this sort of behavior. But it's not to be that way in the church. In the church of God, we are to be a people who aren't victims of favoritism and people who learn to deal with favoritism in our own hearts. And so to take a look at what is favoritism? What's the antidote? And why should we not act in favoritism? We got some good, good text here from James. So open, open with me to James 2 as so we continue this series, our Just Do It series on James. Let's look at James chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going 1 to 13 today in James chapter 2. Favoritism. Favoritism. Let me start here. What is favoritism? Let's look at these first few verses. It says, My brothers, my sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man, James gives this really great, poignant illustration. You know, what does favoritism look like? He tells us. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, he's talking about church, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So what is favoritism? It's, it's this. It's when we show preferential treatment to someone because of some external, be it their good looks, be it their wealth, kind of their possessions, or be it their status, kind of the influence that they wield. And when we change our behavior because of who they are, that is favoritism. 
And surely James, you know, who's really well-versed in the Old Testament, he's thinking of things like Leviticus 19.15, kind of the, the law that God gave to Moses. It says, do not pervert justice. And he says both ways. He says, don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And in the wisdom literature, in Proverbs 18, it says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the innocent of justice. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, it is not a difficult search on the internet to find all over where people are victims of favoritism or are showing favoritism. But let's take a moment here and also say what favoritism is not because I have a little example on the counter that we need to really process through. And I think that as we go through this scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit will kind of illuminate things to our heart. And that is, you know, I think of Jesus and Jesus was a man without sin. And we see him walking, and he obviously didn't show favoritism, but who did he call to himself? You know, out of a crowd of several hundred, he called 12 to walk with him closely. And that wasn't favoritism, was it? And then we see even out of that that he called three, Peter, James, and John, to walk with him super closely. Like he, every time he did something kind of radical, like get transfigured or raise someone from the dead, you know? He had his closest buddies with him, Peter, James, and John. And I just wonder sometimes, you know, what was it like for Thomas? What was it like for Bartholomew? You know, we don't hear a lot about these guys. You have to dig deep. You have to go to extra biblical sources to find what these guys' lives are like. But what was it like when those three come down off the mountain and say, hey, we got to see Jesus looking like a ghost. And we actually met with some guys who were dead. And uh, it, was, it was kind of crazy, you know, cloud of glory. What does that do to like a Thomas or Bartholomew or a whoever? But apparently it's not favoritism. And even going one step further, we know that John is so confident, the writer John, the apostle John, the disciple John is so secure in Jesus' love for him. He calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So why is that not favoritism? Well, we're going to answer that question now. I think as we get through some of James here, it's going to become a little more, more clear about why, you know, it's okay for John Prickett, Pastor John, if he has a few people over the house to watch a basketball game, it's not favoritism. It's John just having a few people over the house, you know, because he really can't have the whole college ministry over all the time. Although he does a good job of doing it when he does. So it's pretty good. So well, let's skip down. We're going to skip down to verse 8. And we're going to write to, okay, so favoritism is showing this preferential treatment to people because of status, wealth, possessions, or kind of their influence, or maybe their good looks. And what's the antidote? How do we not show favoritism? James, get right into it. He gets right into it. Let's look at verse 8. He says it right here. He says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. What's the antidote to favoritism? It's keeping the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. And now he's going to go on to explain how this is just as important as anything else. He says in verses 9 through 11, he says, But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. That law being that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And he explains, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it, right? So maybe you're sexually pure and you're loving your wife, and you're integrous at work, you have integrity at work, but if you show favoritism, still no good. As he says in verse 11, For he who said, 
do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. In other words, as we show favoritism, it's, it's still just falling short. It's still sinning. And again, James for sure has this mosaic law in his mind. From Leviticus 19.18, it says, Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. But love your neighbor as yourself. So even when Jesus comes and he kind of gives this reiteration, someone says, hey, what, you know, what are the greatest commandments? Jesus is able to give this one. And the context is, hey, um, I, I shouldn't bear a grudge because I don't want someone to bear a grudge against me. So I'm to love my neighbor as myself. And so it applies to favoritism also, correct? Who of us wants to be judged or treated differently because of either our, our finances, whether we feel like we have much or our lack? Who of us wants to be treated differently because of how we look? You know, essentially what we've been given is from God. And some of us are really good looking and some of us aren't as good looking and it's got to be okay, you know? We don't want to be judged by it. Who of us wants to be judged because of maybe our position? Or who, excuse me, who of us wants to be shown favoritism or flattered or shown a lack of favoritism because of our rank or, you know, in, in the office or wherever, wherever we are? None of us, right? So we're to love our neighbor as ourself and not show favoritism. And I love so much how James calls it the royal law. He says, hey, this is a royal law. And you know, we just saw a royal wedding a couple of weeks ago. And if there's a royal wedding, it means that there's royalty involved. And so if there's a royal law that James is giving us, it's coming from some royalty. And of course we know who that is. Jesus the King. He's the royal one who gives us this law that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And the great thing about Jesus is he lived it out so, so can we. We his subjects are members of his kingdom. If the king of the kingdom has lived it out, then we can do it too. And we look at Jesus and we say, he's not a guy who showed favoritism, but actually he did the opposite, right? He was the one who elevated the underdogs. Who did he choose to follow him? You know, I mentioned these disciples. He called to himself these 12 guys. Well, they weren't the guys you'd think. You know, in that system of kind of the rabbinic tradition of, hey, let me get some people to intern under me, have an internship with me for a few years, it wouldn't have been fishermen that got chosen. Jesus did the opposite of show favoritism. He got fishermen to follow him, turn things upside down. Jesus conferred secrets of the kingdom to women. You know, I think of John 4, the woman at the well, and he shared with her a secret of the kingdom, right? That wasn't done in those days. Jesus was turning things upside down. If it was favoritism, we would have gone to the most powerful men, but he didn't. And not only that, but who do we have memorialized as women? They weren't necessarily the upstanding women of Palestinian society first century. We've got prostitutes, and we've got um, prostitutes and... Um, sorry, I'm just totally blanking. Adulterers. There you go. Great word. Scarlet letter, eh? <laughs> You got prostitutes and adulterers who are memorialized in the scriptures, right? It's a woman who came and poured out her, her perfume on Jesus' feet and w washed his feet with her hair. And, you know, these ladies were prostitutes, okay? I mean, can you get the picture, the fishnet and everything, you know, for their stockings? I mean, just, have you been to Boston lately and to 
Chinatown, all these places. I mean, just these are the ones who Jesus is saying, hey, you get it. Jesus doesn't show favoritism. He did the opposite. And of course, who else does he count among his friends? Tax collectors, criminals, right? The tax collectors are turncoats, they're traitors. And it's a criminal on the cross next to Jesus who has a mustard seed of faith to believe that this royalty, it really is royalty, although he's dying on the cross. He says, hey, remember me when you come into paradise. Or, remember me, Jesus, you know, as you come into your kingdom. and says, hey, you'll be with me today in paradise. The royal law comes from a, a royal man, a royal God who is living this thing all the time. So we can too. We can also. And it worked both ways. You know, sometimes we... We show favoritism or we kind of do the other thing where we think if someone is too wealthy or too powerful, we find it hard to relate to them. Jesus didn't. He had no problem dealing with a centurion, you know, a Roman soldier who had authority and who is otherwise intimidating to the Jews. Jesus had no problem dealing with them and having mercy on him and seeing his son healed. Jesus had no problem relating to a Pharisee that had a soft heart, right? John 2 or John 3. It's the, the Nick at Night chapter, I like to call it. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And uh, he's able to deal with them. He's not, he's not, at the same time, he's not just like, hey, let me just kick it with the poor people only, you know? He's, he doesn't show favoritism. Our royalty, our royal king's given us this royal law. We can do it too. So, favoritism is this full-blown change of behavior towards people based on an external the antidote is an internal. Jesus gives us an internal compass that we're not reacting to people externally, but we're continually guided. It's like an internal kind of GPS, if you will. And that internal GPS is love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't matter what he or she looks like, smells like, or salary, their position. Just love them. Be, let that internal thing be the guide. That's the antidote, the royal law. Well, now, James is going to help us because it's nice having the royal law, but he helps us. He's going to give us three reasons why we shouldn't show favoritism. Three, I think, very distinct and very helpful reasons. Let's, let's look at those. We're going to go up to, uh, we'll skip back up to, to verse 4 or 5. So James 2, let me just do 5 and beginning of 6. Number one reason why we shouldn't show favoritism. Listen, my dear brothers. He's being cool here. He's saying, my dear brothers, my beloved, my He's, he's giving a little rebuke here, but he's, he's tender. He's saying, listen, beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? but you have insulted the poor. So the number one reason, or the first reason that we want to not show favoritism is because God's kingdom, as I've just mentioned by sharing about Jesus, is it's an upside-down kingdom. Everyone say upside-down. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. We've got to learn that he is often working in the hearts of those who are poor in the eyes of the world. I'm not just talking about monetarily poor, but for some reason in the world have a slight disadvantage, that's who God's always working with. And we just went through a whole set of examples there. You know, last night I was at a graduation party for a Beverly High senior. 
and he's got several brothers. And uh, one of his brothers is going to be a ninth grader next year, and he is just terribly overweight and having a rough go of it. Middle school has been really hard for him. And so I just go, you know, God, here I am at this, you know, they rented a huge hall kind of like this, tons of high schoolers there, and it's kind of bringing me back to my young life days where Kelsey and I met doing high school ministry stuff, and I said, this is cool. I said, God, I don't want to just come here and take emotionally. How can I give? What do you got for me? And I saw um, the grad's brother there, just as you would imagine, sitting alone in a chair kind of on the side and spent a good half an hour with him. And just to see his posture actually physically change, as I just kind of engaged him, said, how are you doing? What's up? You know, tell me about eighth grade. What do you like to do? What do you not like to do? And as we just start to engage, I mean, again, physically the kind of, you know, God's imparting dignity and worth to this guy. And it's awesome because God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. That's, that's what God does. That's who God works with. That's who's open. And we need to, we need to get that in us, that, that God does things in an upside down way. I think of the two, we're about to commission two women here um, in our worship ministry and in our Navigate Training School ministry. And honestly, this description, women who are rich in faith, they are inheriting the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Jenna and Beth are both women who love God and they're inheriting the kingdom and they're rich in faith. But listen, Neither of them are, are driving, you know, a, a Mercedes SUV. And there's nothing wrong if you have a Mercedes SUV. I bless you. And I actually ask for a ride to church. If you can give it to me, I'd love it. <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, or, or, or even like I think about some of their, their potential careers. You know, Beth is a college professor of English. And she happens to be really a specialist in the graphic novel, which is just the academic term for the comic book. Thank you, academia. <laughs> But um, you know what I'm saying? Like if she wanted to pursue that thing, I mean, Beth gets invited to speak at these conferences. She could do that, you know? But there's something in her that says, you know what, that's, that's not where God has me. You know, I'm, I'm, I belong to another kingdom, to kind of use some of the language from Hebrews. I'm, I'm looking for a different city. I'm, 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 I'm planted somewhere else. It's an upside down kingdom that I'm a part of. Same thing, you know, if Jenna wanted to, she could really kind of, she's got people, um, she's got producers approaching her saying, hey, what about a label? I'm not saying she's not going to do that, but I'm just saying, Jenna, there's a whole music thing that Jenna could pursue, kind of no holds barred. But no, she's got a vision of the local church because she's someone who's rich in faith and she's inheriting a kingdom that God's promised and Jenna loves Jesus. She knows that she's part of an upside down kingdom. It's awesome. So the number one reason we don't show favoritism is because we belong to an upside-down kingdom, okay? Second one, right after that. What's another reason we don't show favoritism? Pick up at 6b into 7. It says, is it not the rich, in other words, the people that you're kind of showing favoritism to, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong are the very ones that you kind of show favoritism to to use the example that James used at the beginning of a rich man coming to the meeting are these not the ones exploiting you dragging you into court slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong now just a little context here because that might be hard for us to grasp but 
Remember that things are very dynamic in first century Palestine. And what I mean is, this whole Jesus thing is a movement. It's just taking fire. So it's very likely that in a meeting like this, you know, A, that it's happening on Saturday, that they're still kind of meeting in the synagogue and some people are coming to Jesus. And so there can be kind of this, there's a division that is in the process of happening. You know, people haven't transitioned to Sunday with pews and a cross in the front. They still are reading from the Torah and some people are kind of getting on fire for Jesus. And there's a distinction that's being made. So James can write to them and say, hey, you guys who are people who follow God and some of you are kind of getting the whole Jesus thing that it's, he's our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in a fellowship, this could be happening where some of the guys who are the, lights, the light bulbs turning on for Jesus are getting slammed by the people who that's not yet happening. So that's some context to help us. Now, this probably doesn't happen to us too much. But what I want to say is sometimes with our favoritism, it backfires. Okay, sometimes with our favoritism, it can backfire. And let's kind of break this down a little bit. Here's where the field of psychology can be of great help to us. You know, psychology tells us that a lot of times we are drawn to people in whom we see qualities that we would like, you know? Kind of in extreme cases, it's called a cannibal response. You know, you, you know, uh, you, you, you know as far as the uh, African tribes that may practice this, the cannibalism is they want to eat, they want to literally, literally ingest someone who has the qualities that they wish. And psychologically, sometimes that's what's going on, right? Sometimes we have relationships where we're kind of emotionally taking. In my own kind of walk, I've, I've, I've had a little internal dialogue I do with myself and I call it the idolatrous nuance. <laughs> I'll say, hey, this is a great relationship I have with someone, but there's kind of an idolatrous nuance to it. In other words, I'm kind of getting from this person something because I really enjoy who they are. I almost kind of want to live my life, like, not vicariously through them, but I want to have some of the things that they are. I wish that I was like them. This idolatrous nuance comes to play. Well, it's a pretty normal thing to go through developmentally. And what I mean is, you know, as a child, we all go through the, the, the uh, experience where mommy and daddy are the best people on the planet. You know, my daddy's better than yours. He could beat up you, your dad. You know, that whole thing. But then there's a point where a child realizes, oh my gosh, my mom and my dad are not infallible. And they kind of have to make it through that developmentally and be okay. And they swing way over in adolescence where not only are mom and dad not infallible, but then adolescence, it's like mom and dad are criminally idiots, you know? They're just awful. They're the worst people on the planet. And then usually by 20s and 30s, you kind of swing back and you realize, hey, my parents are okay. You know, they're, they're people. They're a person. I'm, you know, it's okay. But sometimes we don't come through those developmental stages okay. It starts to play out in our other relationships. And, you know, just again, another psychological ambivalence. If you're feeling in one of your work mates or one of your close friends or, you know, it's someone in your family, a lot of ambivalence where at one time you're just totally enjoying them and you think they're the great, greatest person in the world and then all of a sudden you find these feelings of kind of anger, hatred, rejection, like they've disappointed you. If you're kind of going through these roller coasters of ambivalence, you can bet that there's a piece of favoritism that's kind of flowing in there. And God wants to deal with it. He wants to kind of have us disengage that way so that we are loving everyone equally, that we're not showing preferential treatment. <clears throat> so I need to tell you a little story. This, I might turn red because I'm a little embarrassed, but on this whole um, idolatrous nuance thing. So two Februarys ago, um, Kelsey and I heard that 
kind of one of my favorite players in the Boston Bruins was giving autographs. So yeah, talk about idolatrous nuance. I'll just be honest, it's a full-out man crush on this guy. His, <laughs> he's, he's a left winger for the Bruins. His name is Milan Lucic. He's number 17. And let's, we can put up those pictures if we want. So we go to Manchester, you know, the mall in Manchester, New Hampshire. And, um, you know, we wait in line. And, you know, as I'm getting closer, I'm like, Kelsey sees me revert to 13-year-old Neil. I'm getting, like super excited to get this autograph. You know, and then the agents don't know what to do with us. Like, who's this fan? Like, we give our baby to Milan Lucic to sign. And uh, he's, he's signing the thing. And he, I'm having him write it out to J, JD, my son. And he's, you know, I actually gave him this whole post-it note of wanted him, what I wanted him to write to, to Jaren. And his agent's like, no, you can't write all that. But Milan was actually really cool. He's like, well, can I write this? And he, you know, he gave me as much verbiage as he could. Anyways, so to, this whole dynamic's totally in play, you know. Milan Lucic is a fighter. Hey, he's, he's, he's kind of the enforcer on the Bruins. He's an athlete. He's got an incredible story. You know, as you can tell by his name, he's, he's, a, a, child of an, he's a son of, an, of immigrants in Vancouver. And he almost didn't make it to the Bruins, but he has this great story of just kind of being a scrappy guy who made it. And not only has he made it, but he's just brought a lot of personality to the Bruins bench. And really the team is, is really uh, held together in many ways by his personality. So can you see what's happening? I'm just like, dude, you're the man. I love this guy. So as we leave the mall, you know, I tell Kelsey, all right, Kelsey, you know what needs to happen? The Bruins obviously need a chaplain, and that obviously needs to be me. And so, so I mean, Sunday, this happened on a Sunday. We left after church, went to the mall, got the, uh, got the autograph. And um, so Sunday night, I've got a full letter composed, actually with that picture, to Milan Lucic just saying, and I mean, I sent that thing on Monday morning, first thing. I was like, if you need a chaplain, I'm your man, you know? <laughs> So I'm embarrassed. But God did visit me. And he said, you know what, Neil? You, wanna, you want to rub shoulders with these guys, whatever, because your own little perceived lack of whatever you think you don't have. But what happens if I called you to just spend a few minutes? You know, we've got, we've got a place down the street here called the River House. It's the shelter in Beverly. What happens, Neil, if I just ask you to go down to the River House and spend a few minutes there, not even say, hey, come to my church, but what if you just listen to the story of one of the guys there who finds himself in need of emergency housing? Could you do that? And that's where the zing came in. And that's where I realized, wow, God, I'm, I'm not living the royal law like I should. Help me. So you see, a lot of times our favoritism can backfire on us. Now, luckily, this didn't backfire on me yet. You know, I don't have an angry letter from Milan Lucic saying, get away from me, stalker. But, you know what I'm saying? Our, sometimes our, um, our uh, showing favoritism to someone, or the, actually the person themselves, can sometimes injure us. So that's the, the, the reason why we don't show favoritism. The second reason is because it backfires. Sometimes our lavishing favor on someone is really out of our own psychological need and it will backfire. And in God's mercy, he lets it backfire so we can learn that we're all just kind of a mess and we all need him. Amen? Okay. So we, got, we don't want to show favoritism because God, it's an upside down kingdom we live in. The second is because it backfires on us. And the third reason here, let's go to James, the uh, last couple of verses here. James 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the third reason we don't want to show favoritism is because in spite of the non-events of yesterday, we will be judged. We will be judged. There's judgment to come. And of course, what's tough for us as followers of Jesus is now we've got the whole world kind of mocking the whole end of the world deal. But we do believe that a judgment is coming, that God will set things in order. And we're going to be judged by someone who's been so merciful to us. Don't we agree that in our lives, mercy has triumphed over judgment? And I believe Jesus told the best story. You might remember it in Matthew 18. But he tells a story of a master who had multiple servants. And one of those servants had really gotten in debt, right? Actually, the equivalent is like millions of dollars. And that servant came to the master and said, please forgive me my debt. I'm so in over my head. Will you please forgive me? And in his mercy, the master forgives that servant. And what does that servant do? He turns around to one of his fellow servants who owes him only the equivalent of a few dollars. And he takes that guy to task. And instead of showing him mercy, he gets that guy thrown into debtor's prison. Come on. Now the master gets wind of this, that the servant to whom he showed mercy showed no mercy. And so what does the master do? He throws him into prison, not a debtor's prison, but to be tortured. And we would do well to learn this lesson as far as it goes in favoritism, right? None of us deserves the favor of God. There is one man who walked this earth who ever deserved the favor of God, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. None of us are lovely in our own morality to deserve the merit or the favor of God. But in God's mercy, His mercy triumphing over judgment in our own lives, He shows us favor. So who are we to go then turn around and go, hmm, you know, I like this person, I don't like that one. You know, again, I'm not talking about affinity. Affinity is one thing, but you know, I'm going to change how I act because this person has more, you know, potential influence. This person has more wealth. This person is better looking. That's the stuff that Jesus is after. So the third reason we don't want to show favoritism is because God who's shown favor to us will hold us to an account of being sons and daughters of his. Amen? Well, I've been trying to give you some, again, those of you who've been with us for a while, we try to give you these little sticky statements to help you remember these things. You know, we started with um, mature believers, just do it. You know, we borrowed from Nike. Thank you, Nike. As we're looking at the book of James, mature believers, just do it. We're saying we need to people, be a people of action, especially us North American Christians who we, we talk a lot, we think a lot, but we sometimes have trouble doing it. Then John followed up the week after that and said, in order to be mature, we've got to endure. That was the best one so far of the series. It rhymed. So if we want to be mature, we've got to endure. In other words, John took us through John 1 and uh, James 1, excuse me, and had us talk about trial and perseverance. And last week we had just stay connected and live. Okay, yeah, short-term memory's working, right? Looked at James 5, the body of Christ, kind of what it looks like. Well, you're going to love this one. It's just going to roll right off your tongue. Are you ready for this? <laughs> okay. Only right side up, backfired upon people under judgment show favoritism. How's that? Can you put that up there? It just slides right off the tongue, right? Once, you guys just say that with me, okay? Only 
right side up, backfired upon, people under judgment show favoritism. But in all seriousness, there we got the three components. What I'm going to do as um, the worship team comes on up, I just want you to, let's examine our lives and kind of these three components of favoritism. You know, am I missing it? The first one, am I too right side up? In other words, do I forget that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom? He's always for the underdog. Am I missing that? Let the Holy Spirit examine you even now. You just start praying, you know, just responding to God in your own way. Is that what I miss? Backfired upon. You know, as, as I was talking about ambivalence, just that psychological dynamic of, um, of uh, being really drawn to people, but then the back and forth. You know, is that you? Or have you been backfired upon there? Are you, um, is God dealing with you where you maybe have too much affection or emotion going into a c- container of a person who's not really meant to contain it? Or <laughs> are you... <laughs> Are you, are you uh, uh, maybe not sober enough about the reality that God's shown you great mercy and favor and you need to do the same? Which one of those? Maybe it's two or three of them are the ones where God's highlighting for you in regards to favoritism. You just process with him. And I want to say this in closing. A church that really grabs a hold of this royal law is a fun church to be a part of. And I said, I'm going to be honest right here. Someone asked last night in another setting, someone asked, how's the harbor? I said, you know what? I'm glad Kelsey and I have some vacation and some sabbatical coming up, and I'm glad about that. But when we get back, here's what needs to happen. We started out really well in this area in the sense of we began meeting at the YMCA, and the YMCA just has a different demographic. The people who are living there are a different demographic and a demographic that makes church a lot of fun. And so to that question, you know, how's the harbor doing? I said, you know what, it's good, but I can't wait. What I, what, I want to, what I want us to do is we need to start engaging with people who aren't like us. We're just too homogeneous around here. I want to be put in more situations where this favoritism thing gets challenged. You know what I'm saying? I want it because even though it's painful and uncomfortable at times, it's where Jesus is as we just unpacked. It's what he's doing. I want, we need a little more messiness around here, okay? We need a little more messiness. I'd rather have some bizarre things happen in the service like they used to. You know, we, I just remember our first Easter was absolutely hilarious because, you know, as I'm sharing, you know, we got people asking, you know, when's the parade coming by and stuff like this. And just, it was just like a, a circus in some ways. But I miss that circus because, because I miss those people. And it's where Jesus is. You know what I'm saying? So let's be a church that is getting in the messiness and dirtiness so we actually have to deal with some of this stuff maybe a little more. Amen? Amen. I'm just going to pray. We're going to transition here. Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you that just in your own wonderful, quiet, yet totally penetrating way, you highlight our hearts. And we just confess that we are actually given over to show favoritism because of our own lack. Lord, out of our own perceived lack, out of our own brokenness, we... We give affection to those to whom we think um, we'll get something from it. Holy Spirit, help us to sort it out, Lord. I know there's a lot of pain, there's rejection, there's wounding from our families, from our other leaders. We feel like we're the victims often. Help us to sort it out. Holy Spirit, show us that dynamic of, hey, what's okay? What's affinity? And what's, you know, it's okay to enjoy certain people, but what has crossed the line into 
favoritism and preferential treatment. Reset that internal compass, I pray. That internal compass of the royal law that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We just reset that in us once again. Let us not be reacting to others' externals, but let us be internally motivated continuously to love whoever is before us, rich or poor, beautiful or homely, influential or simple. Change us. We want to be a part of the church that's a lot of fun because we're engaging with the have-nots more. Bless you, Lord. Amen.